evening. Let's just pray. Father, I just thank you for your grace, your love, your mercy, all those amazing things we know in our hearts to be true that don't need to be in our hearts. They're just who you are, Lord. They are truth, and you are as good as you say that you are. Help us to believe that, Lord. Help us to believe that you are the God that created us, that you created us for a purpose, that you have intent, that you have power to make that intent come to pass. Lord, as many of us in here might be confused, might be needing a miracle, we know that you are the God who brings things to clarity and can do miracles, Lord. So we just want you to have your way. Um, Give us some understanding of who you are and whatever happens, let it fall as it may, Lord. We know you're a good God and you only do good things and you're bringing us to yourself, Lord, and let that be enough, Lord. Let that be our hearts. Be content. Send your spirit that we might know you better and have peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Colossians chapter 1. And last time we ended um, in the middle of the chapter, and it's a bold statement, one of the boldest in the, in, the, in the scriptures of who Jesus is. And again, this book can be known as maybe the most Christ-centered book. And uh, I don't know how you can do this justice. It's reading it, and I did not cover much of it, so I'm going to come back and look at different angles of it than from last time. But we'll start there, and we'll go to the end of the chapter and I'm going to kind of do the end first and then come back and go over the beginning again, something a little bit different. But um, chapter 1, verse 15, speaking of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And that word image is icon. It's means he is the express image. It's as if you took a signet ring and stuck it into the wax. It's the image left on it. It's the, the invisible God made visible. He is the icon of the invisible God, the foremost over all creation. For by him, verse 16, all things that were created, that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, or the first out of among the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you, and you can put yourself there, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. 
verse 23. If indeed, some people would say, I knew there was a catch. If indeed you continue in the faith, and before we even finish this verse, thank you, Pastor Joe, for explaining this to me. If actually is a Greek word. There are actually three different words that we translate into if. And one is if and it is. In other words, since. One is if and maybe it is. And the other one is if and it's not. So it doesn't leave it to chance. And this is the word if and it is. So this actually says rightfully since. Since indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So now we're going to this if. Um, tells us that's where they stand. I just wanted to, verse 24, so we'll head down this road and uh, begin here. 24, I now rejoice in my sufferings. Some people would stick their fingers in their ear and stop listening right now. <laughs> what are you talking about, Paul? Or pay attention. Maybe this is something I need to hear. This is for everybody. God is not a respecter of persons. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Verse 27, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And again, a mystery is something that wasn't revealed, but now is. And God had always intended, it was in the Old Testament, all along that the Jews were there to be an icon, something for, not an icon, but a witness to the, the whole world that all people might be saved. And it was always there, but they didn't necessarily see it. Just like we talked this morning that the, the apostles knew Jesus was going to be raised from the dead, but until it became clear, they had no idea, even though he told them multiple times. The mystery is the Gentiles, and then it's in them that Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And that Jesus, him, 28, we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. So no matter what else happens tonight, I can say I finished the chapter at least. <laughs> him we preach. Preaching is what we do to the unsaved or unbelievers or somebody that's reading the word that doesn't understand it. Preaching is to foretell and teaching is what we do to instruct people that want to learn more. Both are important, preaching and teaching. In verse 24, he's rejoicing in his sufferings for you and not to be confused. Paul didn't do anything 
to add to the salvation of anybody, including himself. So if that's true, then what does this mean? And uh, Paul knew he was going to suffer after he got saved. Jesus himself told him all things that were going to happen to him um, right after salvation. And he willingly allowed Jesus to do with him as he desired. And when Jesus is standing before you, causes you to be blind, you need to be led by a hand. And then the people you were going to persecute, are the, you're now in their debt, and they're the ones there. It's kind of humbling. And when God gets control of you, and you get accused personally, we can kind of see this whole story. So when Paul was persecuting people, Christians, the, the, the people that he had already persecuted, including Stephen and all of those, they didn't add anything to the salvation of other people. But Jesus looked at Paul and said, why are you persecuting me? You see me in them, and you hate me in them. So they, Stephen, got beat, killed, martyred by Paul, and that didn't add to his salvation, but it did allow him to experience something that Jesus experienced. He got to partake of his nature, and Jesus himself said that he will be blessed with eternal blessings for that happening. People seeing Christ in you, and it probably led to have something to do with Paul's salvation. So as Paul is go, um, as Paul is doing this against Stephen, it's actually against God. The pricks, the goads that Paul was pricking against, he saw Christ in Stephen. So Stephen did not die for Paul, but he got to partake of Jesus' sufferings. He got to experience and taste something. So God was forming in Paul the nature of his son. He willingly went through that. And... Uh, that in and of itself should be enough. It's good for us. So now we come, we're about to go back to this whole creation thing eventually, which should bring a good question. Why am I here? What are we, why did God create everything? It's, a, it's going to tell us that he reconciled it all. He brought it all back to its original purpose. So did God put us here just to suffer? Did he put us here just to be comfortable? Did he put us here just to enjoy the nice sunshine outside and get tan? <laughs> if he did, he did a bad job today. There's a purpose for being here, and it's to be conformed into the image of his son that other people might see him and desire to be with us. There's a goal in check, and sometimes it has nothing to do with us, what we go through. It's all about him doing something through us for someone else. Sometimes we need to be corrected. Sometimes other people need to see his goodness. Sometimes people... You're the only Bible that people will read. And as they see you and as they treat you badly and they see how you respond, they are like, that's different. I didn't expect that. And that can haunt them, which should cause us to be weary of how we react when we're mistreated. And a pastor I heard said one thing that he kind of saw through this is he goes away on missions trips, outings, other places, and sometimes people will step up and take care of wife, kids, house, things for him while he's gone. And he appreciates it because he's not there and seems like something always happens when you're gone. There's a spiritual attack. There's spiritual truth things going on. 
So he, he kind of appreciates that in other people. And Jesus, the church is the bride of Christ. Paul is ministering to them. You're not going to, I'm not going to meet somebody here today that I've never met before and say, hey, I'm about to go away. Do you mind staying in my house? And if I come back and my, my car's not gone and all that stuff, then okay, I guess he, he cared for me. That's what made him, he's not proving himself. You don't trust that into somebody that you don't already know is going to do it, right? So Paul was not saying, I am earning my salvation and now God trusts me. He's like, he already knows he's given me his heart. He's teaching me about who he is. And now I get the blessing of helping out my brother, helping out the church, and tasting what it means to be in ministry through the service of what Jesus did. I get to partake of who he is. And, and what's lacking is in me. The things that are difficult for me are the things where I'm, if it's hard for me, it's because I'm lacking something. And God's allowing it to happen to me to bring it unto myself so that therefore it can be fruitful in him causing the likeness of his son in me. So by helping out, you're revealing your love by your willingness. There's a, there's a fruit in this whole thing, and it's when you give up for the body. And how do you give up for the body of Christ? I mean, around here, we don't take our lives yet in danger by coming to church, but it can be an inconvenience. It can be an inconvenience saying the name of Jesus in public. That can cause, unfortunately, discomfort, um, a spending of yourself is worship. It's, wor it's worth something to God. And uh, sometimes people aren't where they need to be. And when you try to minister to them, they don't always receive it well. So they are lacking something. Are you willing to be spent for other people, even if there's a cost? It's exactly what Jesus did, why he came. Otherwise, he wouldn't have needed to come. He spent everything for an undeserving people because he loves us and that's what he wanted to do. So I'm sitting there going through, this is the more difficult to understand portion of scripture. And uh, I was actually reading quite a bit of commentary and listening to this yesterday morning. And then I got the privilege of picking up a brother, Steve, to take him to get medical help, which he needs a ride, and showing up, and I haven't been able to do it for a while because he's in a wheelchair and I can't, I was uncomfortable thinking of pushing him with a bad knee and watching him go down the road, and how do you explain that to people? <laughs> and uh, so it was the first time in a while, haven't seen him, he doesn't know what I've been doing all day, and uh, as I go to pick him up, haven't seen him since he's uh, had to have two fingers amputated. If you're listening, Steve, love your brother. <laughs> He's a, hopefully you know him because he's a blessing. And uh, he's had some difficult things in his life. And he looks at me and we're talking and fellowshipping and catching up. And he's like, yeah, I was sitting here wondering, you know, why do I go through so difficult things all the time, it seems. And the Lord finally spoke to me in Colossians chapter 1. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Maybe you should teach tomorrow. <laughs> He's experiencing it. Sometimes, so he, whatever comfort, if you're going through something difficult, if you're going through a trial, if you're going through and you don't understand why, this brought comfort to my brother that the suffering sometimes fills up what is lacking in the affliction of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. 
which he became a minister. I am a servant to the stewardship of God, which was given to me to fulfill the word of God. And the word of God that was fulfilled was God told him all this was going to happen ahead of time. And he told us that too. He said, if, you, if, if, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. And that's not, it's not comfortable. The flesh is at war with God, and we all have a flesh. Other people have a flesh. Their flesh is going to be at war with God when they see it in you, and you're going to have a battle inside also in yourself. So as we go through this world and it gets difficult, it shouldn't be a surprise. There's a war. And uh, I had also mentioned that to somebody on the way into um, just mindful. Years ago we had, I think it was Wes Bentley from the sedan here with two people from there, um, that were in the Sudanese army that were here talking and they were involved in, they might have also been um, chaplains with him and they did some, had a difficult life as we would say and they were in a country that was at war that was hard and we were heartfelt for them, prayerful for them weeks before they came and then they came to share and I got the luxury of being in the prayer room with them afterwards and we're just praying for their country praying for these men praying for strength praying for god to do miracles and when we got all done i got to talk with one of them and they're like you guys have a a good heart for us he goes but if we thought things were bad there and good here we never would have came He goes, we're in the middle of a war and we know we're in war jesus shows up every day we're seeing miracles all the time people are getting saved right and left he goes we hear about your country and you people are asleep, you're prisoners of war, you don't even know you're at war. And we think that we have it good, and they were concerned for us. What, what actually is a blessing? We're in a war, and it's a spiritual war. But God is in control, amen? Which brings us back to chapter 1, verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. And if you were to just read through this, and, 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 all, 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 he makes a point. (laughs) He is over all. What isn't he in control over? What didn't he create? What is hard or difficult or not under his realm? For by him... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. Heaven and earth. I don't know of anything else other than heaven and earth. We have the universe visible and the universe invisible. He created everything. And then he says, visible and invisible. And at first, I used to think visible. What can you see? Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. Time, space, and matter all had a beginning. Before, we talked about that last time, right? There had to be a first cause. God had to be outside of that in order to create that. If it was already there, then something had to create it before that. It wasn't there yet. God was outside of time, space, and matter. He created time, space, and matter. So visible, there's things that we see matter. And then invisible, well, there's particles of matter so small I can't see. That's how I used to see, think of as invisible because I'm a time, space, and matter being and my flesh, that's all we're able to see. But he goes on and says, invisible, whether 
thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. And I kind of read over that often when I'm reading through this. And this time it kind of hit me. What is the difference? Is it like a run-on sentence of like a lot of adjectives for the same thing? And this, I believe, is talking about the invisible. Thrones, and the, the visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities, or powers. And we think of thrones, it's the, the best way I looked up my concordance, the simple-minded thing I came to, is throne seems to be the seat of authority. A dominion is the person of authority. A principality is the origin of authority. And the powers is the power of authority. He created and holds together and is the head of all seats of authority, visible and invisible, the person of authority, visible and invisible, the origin of authority. All, all authority came from him. There is no authority apart from him. There is no power apart from him. We talked about that before too. And it talks about that, the power of authority. If somebody has power, it's not that they have power, but God's power is more. They have God's power on loan. The power they have is from him. He is not the most powerful thing. He is all-powerful. That answers the question, can, is God, if God is so strong, can he make something that he can't? No, all the, everything came from him. In fact, you can't even use hard to define anything in God. What would be hard? Is it hard to pick something up? Was it hard to ask that question? It's words. He does everything with words. How hard is it to talk? I can talk. If he can talk, he can do anything. There's nothing he can't do. He speaks, and it is. And this is kind of humbling. God created all seats of authority, all people of authority, all the origin of authority, and all the power of authority. And that's uncomfortable because we often have a problem with authority. At least I do. I don't like being told what to do. And I can justify not recognizing certain authority because it makes me uncomfortable, and I don't want to do that. And God's been dealing, I think, with all of us about this specific thing, so I'm not going to dwell on it because it's a sensitive subject right now, but there it is. Go home, ask the Lord to explain that to you. Other than I will say, when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, he says, don't you know I have the authority or the power to have you dead and you're going to stand there before me silent? And he said, you would have no authority except that my father gave it to you. His father gave him the authority to put him to death. We would all believe it's an atrocious act to want to murder God in the flesh. But God also knew it had to happen or we would all die. It did fulfill his plan. God did give him that authority. He's just going to be accountable for what he did with it because he did it for the wrong intention. So Pontius Pilate is in trouble <laughs> because he had a bad heart. But it doesn't mean God wasn't in control. Sometimes uncomfortable things happen. Governments and issues and decrees happen and we don't like them and they make us uncomfortable. But it doesn't mean God's not in control. It means they're going to be accountable for what they do with it. And it might just be that people want to see how we react to it. Do we actually believe God is in control? <clears throat> and to make it better, just in case we didn't get the point, 
All things were created through him and for him. Those thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers were created through him, and they were created for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. So that word consists, we'll talk about in a minute. First, I want to get back to, I feel like Jude I want to talk to you about our common salvation, but I need to earnestly beseech you to contend for the faith. This creation issue is stated simply, yet it's not believed on in the world. And we live in a world that wants to deny it. And there is a battle. And last time we talked a little bit about this. So in, in their day, Paul's day here, we had talked about Greek philosophy and how they were battling Christian, Christian theology and how there was this fight, and we went through that whole exhortation on Socrates and that whole realm of thinking. But in our day, which we didn't really get into as much, um, we battled science more so. More, there's more people I talk to if you're out preaching that have an issue with the Bible that it'll come down to evolution. Evolution versus creation. I don't know if you're comfortable having that debacle, debate, argument, which is oftentimes what it comes down to. Um, but I, I just feel that you may already have studied much. I watched many, many, many videos in the last month on this topic, and I love watching them. I just wish I could remember more. I love listening to PhDs. I'm not a PhD. So half of what I, re- I hear makes sense to me, but I can't often reiterate in a conversation with somebody when I need to. So I almost want to just say, here, watch this video, but I don't know if they will or not. But one of the things, it's, there's a simple way of, of dealing with it all. I think that kind of helps. So in this conversation, you can't help but see order in the universe. Everyone sees it. We have the same evidence. So if you're there and you're aware and you're thinking and you're not just hitting your head against the wall saying, I'm going to do what I do because that's what I do, and you want to rationally try to reason through something, you're going to look for evidence. And we, again, mentioned last time that evolutionists and creationists, it's not who has the best evidence. We all have the same evidence. The question isn't the laws. We all have the same laws. The question is, is, how do you view that? What world order? What mindset do you have? That, what lens are you looking at it through? So we know that DNA is organized information. Everything that exists has it. So now the question comes is, where did information come from? And we talked about that last time. Um, information comes from a mind. And in order for there to be a thought, there has to be a mind. And in order for that, there has to be a first cause. And we talked about that. God is the first cause. If not, what was? And can life's code happen randomly by chance? Is there a possibility that life came from non-life or that everything started from nothing? So there's been many debates. Of course, there was the, the great debate. So in November of 1859, I believe, Darwin's Origin of Species came out. And then Huxley, there's this big debate in Oxford, and then seven months later at Oxford, and they had this huge argument, and, that even wasn't written, but there's rumors about what was said there. But people talking about that after it came out of it, and the biggest 
lie that I've come across that seems to be the go-to for them is statistics or probability. What is, so if you were to look at the equation for probability, it's probability plus time equals one. You give anything enough time, it can happen. So I don't know if you've noticed from, some of us are older when we were younger and we went through school, the age of the earth was thousands of years, then it went to millions of years, and it keeps growing. Why does it keep growing? Do they find evidence that proves that the earth is older? No, they have evidence that proves that the earth couldn't have happened in the amount of time that they thought it did. So therefore, we'll go back to our probability and add time, because therefore we can then justify what we want to believe to be true. They don't have evidence that it's that old. And... Uh, they'll always have this way out, and we also have that way out, right? If somebody comes to you with a Bible answer and says, oh, you believe the Bible to be true and God's word and unchanged? Yeah, okay, and they give you a question that you can't answer. Well, you'll say, well, I'm sure it's there. I just must not know it. Give me time to go look it up, and that's the right thing to do. I'm looking at it through my worldview. So are they. So they will say, well, maybe if there's enough time, and they'll want to do that. And then there's this whole monkey and the typewriters. Anybody in here heard of the monkey randomly hitting a typewriter. That was one of the biggest things that they said. Probability plus time equals one. They, they usually use Shakespeare. They, this is pick Hamlet. If you had a, a monkey sitting at a typewriter and he randomly just hit a key, eventually he can write Hamlet. It'll just be there. Given enough time and enough monkeys, and, and if you have any brain at all, you'll be like, no. <laughs> but technically... If you believe mathematics, the probability will say yes. So here's some numbers. I don't even know if they're actual numbers. They're so big. <laughs> but, but let's just use the word banana. What's the probability of a monkey sitting at a typewriter? The typewriter's got 50 keys. And that everything that it sits there and types, eventually somewhere on the paper, the word B-A-N-A-N-A will be there. Well, to hit a B... Is a one in a fifty chance. To hit a B and A is a one in fifty times one in a fifty. So one in a fifty to the times six. So just to get the word banana is less than a one in fifteen billion chance. So now let's talk about Hamlet. <laughs> so Hamlet has one hundred and thirty thousand letters in it, which they, which reasonable scientists, reasonable I say, deceived on purpose. Right, they're ignorant on purpose, Roman says, will tell you that this can happen because they want to believe that life can happen by chance. They're willing, and this is not science, it's never been done. Science is a study of observable evidence, so they're sitting there clinging to this stuff. So one thing that I happened to read, and it's absurd, absurd enough that it's got to be close to the truth. It says, if every proton in the observable universe were a monkey with a typewriter typing from what they say the Big Bang is to the end of the universe where proteins no longer exist. And then at the end of that time, you did it again. And you did that 360,000 more times. You would have a 1 in 10 to the 500th power chance of getting Hamlet. In other words, to have a 1 in trillion chance, you would need 10 to the 360th 1,641, and again, 
10 to the second power and 10 to the third power isn't a third more, it's twice. Every power is twice. You would need 10 to the 360,641st power of observable universes with every universe, all the protons were monkeys typing in order to get a one in trillion chance. It didn't happen. It can't happen. No monkey's ever gonna do that. Just to keep that in mind, a single human chromosome has 20 billion bits of information that they claimed happened by random chance. That number isn't even able to be calculated by me anyways. So there's a PhD, he's spoken at multiple churches. He's British, he's got an accent. Um, if you want to understand what I'm about to say, listen to him, because I'm not going to get this correct, because I am not a chemist or a physicist or understand any of this stuff. But his stuff is readily available, and I can find it for you if you want to hear it. But uh, he actually recently, I believe he's still alive, it wasn't that long ago he said this, wrote a book, and he understands chemistry. So when you're talking about protons and chromosomes and life coming from non-life, it's a chemical reaction. And he said in order for that to happen, because he went back to this argument, because it's one of the most prevalent arguments, and nobody could give a proper theological answer why that can't be true, probability. And again, they're always going back to probability. That's their catchphrase. Whenever you catch them and they don't know, well, if we had enough time, anything can happen. Well, now I can't argue with you. But you can. We're going there next. <laughs> Dr. Wilder Smith wrote and teaches that the, this, how all life comes, chemistry happens, that when you have a chemical reaction, if it doesn't do something, it goes away. Otherwise, you got a cold, you would die from it. There's things that happen in you that leave. So he said, and he says all chemists know this, and I'm not a chemist, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But he said that would be as if a monkey wanting to hit, type banana hit the, the B, the B went and hit the paper, and it came away, but there's no B on the paper because it didn't make a banana. He said it can't work. He can, he's proven that theory does not work. There's no amount of time that would can spell or cause life to come from non-life. It can't happen. And he's convincing I'm not. So evolutionists and creationists, we have the same evidence. They'll always use what uh, Jason Lyle from the Institution of Creation Research says is a rescuing device. So he'll sit there and say, probability, more time, anything can happen, more time. They'll always throw something out. Um, we all have presuppositions from our worldview um, since the Bible is true, it should be our worldview. He says, never give that up. Oftentimes, they'll want you to leave that because they say that they're neutral, and therefore, you have to leave that to become neutral. He says, nobody's neutral. We all have a presupposition. It's not a good basis of arguing. He said, they presuppose things, and he claims, and this is fairly easy. He says, he can teach you. I can show you videos and information on him, too, if you're interested. And again, I think this is very relevant for the time in which we live. It's a basis for non-believers trying to just come against and fight us. But he says there's a bunch of presuppositions that we all have, including them. And one of them, he says, is that knowledge is possible. You have to believe knowledge is possible. Preconditions of intelligibility have to be true in order for us to know anything. If you can't know anything, there's no sense in even trying to learn. That's a basis. And he says, and he can prove, all of these come from the Bible. 
there's a law of non-contradiction. You can't have A and not have A at the same time. That's based on the Bible. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and truth is truth. The laws of logic, there's a standard of correct reasoning. Uniformity of nature, there's constants that we can depend on. Laws of nature. If things didn't stay constant, then you can't prove anything. This is all based on a God and morality. There's many others that he talks about. Some of them are easier to understand. One of the things he uses as an example is, I went out to my car this morning, I turned the key, nothing turned over, didn't work. He didn't think, oh, I wonder if physics stopped working. I wonder if things don't explode anymore. No, you think the battery's dead. You assume that things happen. We all do, so do they. And what he says is that they use the Bible's truths in order to disprove the Bible. He says, make them stop doing that. Call them on it. <clears throat> every Christian, every non-Christian theory will steal from the Bible to try to prove the Bible wrong. And he ends up going to Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5, which when you read that, you might be like, what's he talking about, Solomon? Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest thou also be like unto him. And verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceit. First he says, don't answer him. Then he says, answer him. He says, no, don't answer him according to his folly. So if somebody says, well, I believe there's no absolute truths. Okay, so if there are no absolute truths, let's start there and then talk from, from there. He goes, no, don't answer him according to his folly. I don't, I don't agree with you that there's no absolute truths. And then he says, you can... You can prove wrong every theory from its, own, from its own theory. They're all self-destructive. Just don't let them use the Bible to support it, and it'll fall apart. An easy one is there are no absolute truths. He says, I don't believe there's an absolute truth. Well, okay, first of all, I don't agree with you. I believe there are absolute truths. The God of the Bible says that there's absolute. He's absolutely true, and there's things that don't change. He doesn't change. And secondly, are you absolutely sure there's no absolute truth? It's a self-defeating statement because if you're not sure that it's true, then maybe you're wrong. And if you are sure that there are no absolute truths, well, then you're absolutely sure, which makes yourself a liar because you just prove yourself wrong. You, can't, you have no ground to stand on. If you're absolutely sure it's, there are no absolute truths, then there's one absolute truth, so therefore it's, it's self-defeating. It, that's a simple one to understand. Um, an easier one that's probably more practical that we've all heard if there was an all-powerful, good God, then there wouldn't be evil in the world. Why would a loving God allow evil in the world if he's all-powerful? If God is good and he's all-powerful, why would he allow evil? So if you are going to come with evidence of evil and stand there, you can bring up more evidence and you can try to explain to him things like I've usually done about how God is good and how that might not be considered evil, but they're not going to receive that and understand it. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. I don't agree with you that God is not good and that he's not all-powerful. And then answer him according to his folly. First of all, there's an all-powerful God, and if there was no God and we're just chemical goo, what makes evil wrong? Why do you even care if there's evil? Why does it matter what one chemical goo does to another chemical goo? And the fact that you're calling it evil means that you have a standard of right and wrong. Where does your standard come from? You, you have no ground to stand on. You can't tell me anything's wrong. You don't even know what's right and wrong. It, they're all self, 
defeating. We're all created in God's image, and internally we know and assume certain things. Non-believers know that there's right and wrong. Everyone knows that there's right and wrong. What would make anything wrong? I've had multiple conversations with people at work that aren't believers, and one guy is like, just because I don't believe in God doesn't mean that I can't have morals. I'm like, you're right, you can have morals. I believe you're created in the image of God, and you do know morally what is right and wrong. You just can't give me a reason why you should have them. And he admitted to me, you're right. And for, next of all, we're not even, he goes, why don't we just all do good? We're not going to agree with what good is. I just agree with God what good is. How would I know? God told us. If there's a God, he determined good, and he is the standard for good. And if not, how can you call anything bad? So, with all that in mind, another easy one to pick. If you believe in evolution, there was a guy who also was a Darwinianist, and he believed in evolution, and he believed the world was progressing and becoming better, and he wanted the world to move in that direction. So he actually went out and did something about it, and he determined, how he determined this, I don't know. But he wrote a book, and it was popular, and they decided to keep the best things and get rid of the worst things, and therefore society would be farther ahead. He was not only backed by the Catholic Church, but by most, a part of a continent. The book is Mein Kampf. His name is Adolf Hitler. And he said, we're the master race. We're more evolved than everybody else. And he took Darwinian. In, he, was, he quotes Darwin in his book. He believed that they were the head. Of course, they determined that you could tell which species of human, there is such a thing, the human race is, <laughs> is the species. Um, he would measure their head. He would do all of these things. We are the master race. And he would went about to try to prove it. That's where Darwinianism will take you if you let it run its course. Not a good place. And I didn't talk about this last time. So creation, evolution, you probably all have met many people that are evolutionists. Maybe you don't know why you believe you're a creationist, if you even do. There's tons and tons of research, and it all makes sense morally. Evolution, the biggest problem if you're a Christian and you believe the Bible to be true is that evolution brings death before sin. And the Bible says that sin caused death. How can you reconcile those things? Evolution is a horrible, it, it, it just is death and destruction. God's much kinder than that. So 16.4, by him all things were created, he just states it, do you believe it, that are in heaven, that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. 17, and he is before all things. All things are in front of him, and he is above all of them. He is in charge of everything. And in him all things consist, and that word consists is sunistao. It's a perfect active third-person verb. It means to be set in place or held together. He is consistently, presently, continually holding all things together. And uh, 
again, this might be a refresher to a lot of people, um, but being in the retired now, but from the field of electricity, I find this very interesting. Uh, Colum's Law, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of Colum's Law, but he was a very bright man a while ago that determined that they could measure the force between two charged bodies, like charges repel, unlike charges attract. Anybody, any kid that's played with a magnet has figured that out at a young age. It's fun to sit there and push things apart and pull them together. And it just so happens that the atomic structure is what we're made up of. The whole universe is made up of is positively charged proton clusters together while negatively charged electrons rotate around them. So you have all of these same charged, positively charged protons clustering together in a group. And they're supposed to be repelling because their column's law is a law, and it's true. It just happens to not be true in every cell, every atom that we have in the universe. But other than that, it, it works. And, and how? And they still don't know. They come up with all kinds of things. But we do know that if you try really hard, that you can separate them and you'll have an A-bomb, an atomic bomb, the force of an atomic bomb. So think about that. The force of an atomic bomb, the force to hold it together is greater than the release. How strong is Jesus? He is holding literally every atomic structure and cluster together until the time comes when he's going to let go. And, verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And we talked about that too. Jesus is the head of the body. He's not saying he should be. Without a, a head, the body can't live. And unfortunately, churches die when they separate themselves from God himself. He is life. And, he's, and he came out from among the dead. So he wasn't the first one to be risen from the dead, right? Because we know that other people, Lazarus, was raised from the dead. But he actually was the first one. He died again, right? He was the first one with a new body that had come out. <clears throat> In verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And that was a slam right to the false teachers in class. So they thought, as well as um, verse 16, for by him all things were created, visible and invisible, dominions, thrones, principalities, powers. They had this hierarchy of spiritual things, including angels. We're going to read about that in a couple chapters, about this worship of angels and hierarchy. And you could get closer to by God by who you would have intercede or who you would pray to. And there was this order, and they would use the word fullness. So if you want the fullness of God, then you therefore must come and do this other spiritual act. And Paul is just saying, no, it pleases the Father that in Jesus all the fullness should dwell. He is all that you need. Right? We, can, we can and should say that often because it's still true. Jesus might be all that you have. Sometimes I don't feel like I have anything but Jesus. All I have is Jesus to cling to. That's all that I have. But he's all you need. He's all you should want. He's enough. And sometimes God allows us to be stripped down to that's all we have. And then as he looked at his apostles and said, are you going to go too? 
He's like, you have the words to eternal life. Where else are we going to go? You're the only living, powerful, loving being that I know that I can cling to. You're enough. And sometimes he'll try to show us other things that we're clinging to and take them from us. In verse 20, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven. So Jesus is reconciling. Reconcile means to be brought back into proper place. And he's reconciling all things to himself. What was the intent of things? What were angels intended to do? Worship and sing? And now, are they, they're warring? Pastor Joe talked about that too. They're going to be putting down their fighting instruments. They're just going to be singing to him. That's what they were intended for. There's a lot of things going on right now. Not that he died for them. Not that they're going to be forgiven. Fallen angels are fallen. They're done. But they're going to be back doing what they were created to do. Why did God make animals? He's going to reconcile all things. Does that mean my pet's going to be in heaven? Well, I don't know. If he is, he's going to be doing what he was supposed to have been doing. <laughs> he's, well, the, we know there's going to be animals there. Are they new? I, I don't know. I don't, we don't need to know. But we do know that whatever God created things for, they're going to be back doing what they were intended to do. He's going to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth having made peace through the blood of his cross, what did that cross do? If we could only have seen, if we will get to see. We'll see the scars. We'll see the result of it. But I think we'll be forever learning what he actually went through for us, for everything, to reconcile and to restore. And sometimes we are here and there's things unreconciled. Sometimes we are suffering for other people or to be made into the image. And sometimes it's because of relationships, wives, husbands, children, not right, whatever, and and we need help. Jesus wants to reconcile all things, but we all have a will. So he is going to do what he can, what he desires within the realm of still giving us free choice for a loving relationship and we pray and ask and beg and just sit before him and understand that he's in control so we don't make things happen. We don't want to talk him into doing anything other than what he knows to be best. We know that he has in charge of things visible and invisible. Another thing that's invisible, which we didn't talk about, God had a plan for your life before you were born. Psalm 139, he told David that I know all the plans that I had for you were written in a book. Our plans seen. He knows what he wants. He knows why he created you. And we can sit there and say, I think I know what's best, but ultimately we have to depend on you. And since we can't make anything happen, since we can't reconcile anything, since all we can do is grow in our knowledge and understanding of who he is and get more of him and ask and beg him to make us more like himself and then let him be in control because ultimately he already is in control and anything other than that is just fighting with him. Lord, cause me to do what you have for me to do and let me leave the rest to you.
And if there's an authority, you put it there. Let me do what you told me to do and leave the rest to you. And we pray for the authority over us so that we might live peaceable. Doesn't say we can get what we want. I just want to live peaceable. Verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you and me, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled. He reconciled all things to himself, including you, his body. Verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. And as we partake of the elements, we are reminded of his flesh on the cross and the sacrifice that he made physically as he took and despised the shame that you and I deserve. And uh, do this as often as you will and remember to him. So let's partake of the body. In the body of his flesh through death. And we know that the life is in the blood. And as his blood spilt, as the life left his body, as he entered into whatever he did on the cross to somehow pay for an eternal separation from his father for us in that moment, we think of the sacrifice of the suffering that he did, that he willingly did for us. And pray that that will have the effect that he chose it to have, one that we would receive salvation and two that we'd be willing to give our lives a sacrifice. And, uh, thank you, Jesus. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's how he sees you. This had an effect. This didn't have the effect. What this represented had an effect, and that should cause us to be thankful to sacrifice and to worship him. So let's do that. Let's stand and have one more song and praise him for being good. Lord, we do want to be more like you. And Lord, we're, we're thankful, Lord, that you have paid the price for us. And that, Lord, each day as we, as we read your word, Lord, as we are just exercised, Lord, with these things that we read, Lord, as they come into our life and we put them to the test, Lord, knowing that they are the things that really, we, we know that these things are true, Lord. And so you're working in each of us, Lord. May we never grow discouraged or despondent in the things that we see and the things that we see even in our own hearts. Lord, we do want to be like you. And Lord, have your way with us, Lord. May we be open vessels, Lord, that you could use. Lord, to just first in our devotion and our love for you, but secondly, Lord, to be an example, Lord, of the believer and to the believer, and especially to unbelievers. Lord, help us. 
Thank you for tonight, Lord. Thank you for being with us, Lord. And be glorified. And bless us this day and, and all this week, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great night.